It's not always the big things that change the world. It's the small acts of kindness that happen repeatedly over a lifetime that make the world a better place. So every week we share a story of someone like you who is doing good in the world in their own way. Welcome to Doing Good with Carmen Herbert. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Good. I'm your host, Carmen Herbert, and I'm so excited to invite back to my podcast, David Morgan. So for those of you that have been listening, we did a podcast about a year ago and it was so awesome. I wanted to have him back. He was in the middle of writing a book and it's out now and we are going to be talking about that today. But David is a graduate of BYU with a doctorate in counseling psychology. He's worked in a psychologist in private practice for almost 20 years. And over 30 years ago, he married his best friend, his beautiful wife, and they have six children together, in addition to three daughters-in-law and four grandchildren. And besides this new book that he just wrote, he's the author of five books on gospel and mental health topics, is a regular presenter with Onward Productions, and a contributing author to LDS Living Magazine. He was a presenter last year at the 2021 BYU Women's Conference and 2021 BYU Education Week. He's convinced that the gospel of Jesus Christ holds multiple keys to improving emotional and mental health, and currently serves as the bishopric first counselor in his ward, but his favorite calling was seminary teacher. His favorite hobby, I can relate to this one, is going to Disneyland and he's been over 100 times. So I have to ask, is that legit you've been over 100 times or it's like, oh, he's been about 100 times or is this no an actual? Well, I, I think it's probably legit. So that would be like 100 days. So we may have gone on a trip and then done three or four days in a row or something. So yeah, I would no. say and entered the park over 100 times. Oh my goodness. Did this come from childhood? Did you go, did you grow up going to Disney or did this come after you were married and with your wife and you're like, we want to do this with our kids? So it started growing up. We used to live in Bakersfield, California, which is about two hours north of Los Angeles. And so we'd go about once a year. We were, it was on a shoestring budget. We'd have to bring lunch and eat in the picnic area outside. And then we could eat lunch in the park because I'm the oldest of eight kids. Oh my so, goodness. So it was tough. So we'd go once a year for one day. And then after that, once I got married, it just became kind of a hobby and we've taken our kids many, many times. I do feel a little bit bad just because it's becoming so expensive. Oh. I've given my kids this lifelong love of this incredibly expensive hobby. And I kind of wish I would have just taught them how to play Frisbee or something like that, you know? <laughs> it's crazy. We were just there a few weeks ago and... Honestly, between buying the park ticket and then the ride ticket, they're different. So you have to get yeah. like the entrance ticket and then the ride ticket. And then if you want to get the Genie, which is new now for the fast pass lane, it's an extra $20 per person yeah. per day. Per then person. there's the lightning lanes, <laughs> which are special rides like cars and the web slingers that are not included, yeah. which are another 7 to $15 per person, depending on what time of yeah. day you want to go. Per person, per ride. Yeah. So it is hundreds of dollars per person to go for a day at Disneyland. I mean, yeah. and not to mention food and, right. of course, you know, all of the fun souvenirs and everything else that comes with the experience of Disneyland. So and then, you know, hotels and flights and gas to get out there. I mean, it's yeah, it's insane. But I, I'm in the same boat. My parents took us once a year to Disneyland and it was so amazing and so magical and like, how can we not continue this tradition? But man, we're going to have to, every year we go, we immediately start saving for the next year. Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. Well, and it's interesting because we, we could do a whole other podcast on Disneyland. We probably should sometime. It'd be super Oh, fun. that'd be so fun. But 
it's, I think they're getting to the point where it's testing the brand because the brand is so incredibly powerful that people do, they just open their wallets. But at some point you'd think that has to reach a breaking point, right? If, it, so. if it's, if it's $200 a day or $300 a day per person, it's just going to price so many people out. So I know, well, anyway. and I know they've tried to kind of, they've kind of said our parks are so busy. We're trying to minimize the crowd. So by increasing the price so astronomically, yeah. hopefully, but people don't care. It's like you get in the Disney Twilight Zone. You're like $10 for a churro. Sure. And we're going to buy four. Yeah. Because that's what you do. You're at Disney and you do it. And then you get home and you're like, what, what did we spend all this money on? What did we do? Why? So I know we could, we could talk all day about Disneyland, but I would love to talk with you today about your new book. It's called Enduring the Refiner's Fire, Emotional Resilience for Latter-day Trials. So you've written several books about emotional resilience and and mental health, particularly being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Why this book now? So I came up with the idea for this back in May of 2020. So we live in Washington State, and and we had a, a pretty significant lockdown starting in March 2020 to the point, you know, nothing was open, no restaurants were open. And the other habit that I've trained my children on is eating out because we love to eat out all the time. And so, and so here we are with no restaurants open and my wife and I are just kind of going crazy because, you know, we, we want to go out to eat. We just want to have some sense of normalcy. Yes. And, and things were opening up county by county. And so then there was this county up on the West coast of Washington, about two and a half hours from here. And we heard that they had opened up and you could actually eat in a restaurant. So my wife and I took a few days, it was on the beach in Ocean Shores, Washington. We drove up there and spent a couple of days in a hotel and, and ate at restaurants, which was super fun. But as I was sitting in the hotel, I just, I started researching things and I came across this idea of emotional resilience. And I immediately started having thoughts about, well, what is it? And as I studied it, I found that there were a number of gospel applications to this. So I started writing it then, finished it probably the first draft by the end of the year. And then and then it takes about a year to submit to a publisher and go through all that. So it launched about two months ago and super excited. Well, the most perfect timing to be writing a book about emotional resilience during COVID when yeah. so many of us felt like, wow, we are going to have to be really tough emotionally for ourselves, for our kids. I mean, I don't know that I've ever been tested emotionally as much as when the whole world was in commotion and we're like, what the future was uncertain and how are our lives going to look from now on? Like what will be the permanent changes going forward and our kids home from school and missing school and, and falling behind on school and feeling like it's up to us to make sure they are everything educated and happy and safe and have the things that we need and the toilet paper is gone. And I mean, it was <laughs> of all the things, right? All the things. <laughs> so what was the main point that you have maybe experienced in your life? It's like, okay, I really have experience and knowledge in this that I want to share with other people when it comes to emotional resilience. Is this something that you have worked on throughout your life or was there an experience that, wow, through the refiner's fire, taught you how to be more emotionally resilient. Right. Well, it, it happens to all of us. And, and I think it's just been, and the concept has been studied by researchers and psychologists for decades now, but I, but for whatever reason, 
like, like you said, there has never been a time, at least in, in my life and in your life as well, when the whole world was dealing with something at the same time on such a significant scale that affected everyone from, I mean, even these islands that locked down, you know, that didn't let anybody in. I think Australia didn't let anyone in for like a year and a half just yeah. to contain the spread there. But that was a significant disruption to their, you know, to their business and to people's livelihoods and to their their personal lives. They kept oh, yeah. their family. We, we started learning how to do things virtually on Zoom and StreamYard and all those things to try to communicate with one another. For me, just this idea of I think the trials that we face now are becoming more emotional than they are physical. The trials that saints have faced it pretty much up until the last, you know, 30 or 40 years have been mostly physical. You, know, you used to have to build your own house out of logs that you cut down on your farm if you could afford a farm. Right. And, you had, and then you had to farm your land every day and, and hope that you had enough uh, food to last you through the winter. And that's all changed. And I think that Elder Bednar talks about how sometimes we think that happiness is the absence of having some sort of burden in our lives. But he says, no, he says the happiness comes from the burden. It's the, it's that extra weight that we have to put on in order to improve. And we know this in any area except emotionally. We were talking earlier about sports teams, and I know your kids do a lot of sports. And if you said, if the coach said, you know what, conditioning is really hard. We're just not going to do it. We're not going to practice. You know, we'll get the uniforms. That's great. And, you, and we'll take pictures. I mean, probably get your trophies too at the end of it. We're not going to drill on anything. No. You get sweaty and, it, and then you're, then you get, might get hurt and your muscles are sore. We would think that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. You have to train. You have to work hard. How are you going to improve? How are you going to totally. eat? Right. And, and we know that when it comes to our physical health, we have to eat the correct foods if we want to stay healthy. And then when it comes to emotional, we go, well, we don't have to do anything. That, that, that's just automatic. Why right. would I have to be tested? Why would I have to have my emotions pressed to some sort of limit in order to learn how to get stronger? I should just automatically be able to do that. Basically, emotionally, I should be like an Ironman athlete. 100% all the just time. Just born that way, right. Yeah, just born that way with no effort. Or if I'm just righteous enough, then I'll be an emotional Ironman athlete all the time never have to, to do anything to grow. And what my experience is the opposite, that our emotions and our, our emotional ability progresses the same way that our physical ability does, the same way that our spiritual ability does by being tested and tried. And, and what emotional resilience does is it helps us learn how to deal with those things as they happen. And so instead of running and screaming, it's like we say, okay, I can do this. I can make it through this. And how can I get stronger as a result of it, instead of just enduring COVID, instead of just enduring your next trial, when it comes, you say, well, how can I be better as a result of this? That's at the heart of emotional resilience is learning to improve because of our trials and not just endure them or get worse because of them. So what has been a time in your life, if you wouldn't mind sharing about a trial that you've been through that you've had to rely on the things that you've learned about emotional resilience to help you get through it and maybe a time in your life when you didn't have those tools and what was the difference in you know, I don't want to say recovery time but sure. you know getting through that trial with the tools that you are teaching us in this new book enduring the refiner's fire emotional resilience for latter-day trials versus not having these emotional tools 
how, right. what was the difference that you've experienced in your life of, of getting through both trials? If you want sure. to hearing. And so, so it basically it's, it's interesting. It's two separate situations, but similar. So our oldest son got called to serve a mission to Madagascar. About, oh, wow. Yeah. So it's super crazy. And, and what we didn't know is that he had a lot of anxiety it's kind of undiagnosed. We didn't really see it. I, you think I could see it as a psychologist, but when it's right in front of you, it's hard to see. So we sent him to the MTC. We were super excited. as our first son. And then about halfway through his MTC experience, he called home, which was unexpected. And he said, I have a counselor here now and they've been working with me, but everything's fine. And I'm going to go on my mission. No problem. And then like three days before he's supposed to leave, we get a call from a, one of the district presidents at the MTC in Provo. And he says, I need you guys to get on a plane and get here right now. Oh. Um, and so we dropped everything, bought the next flight to Salt Lake and headed out there. And we, we got there too late in the evening to meet, but we met the next morning on the Saturday and went in there and he said, you know, your son's had a significant kind of emotional breakdown and we're sending him home. And they were worried that he was not stable enough to come home just by himself on a plane. That's why they wanted us to come and get him. So we went in there to the MTC and I remember walking in and it's still a little hard to talk about. If, if you know how the MTC in Provo is, there's the big entrance way. And then as you, you go down some steps and then there's a very long hallway off to the left. I remember looking down the hallway and seeing him just sitting on the ground um, up with his back against the wall and his head in his hands. And he was just sobbing. And this is my son. And so I went and talked to him and we talked about it and he had just had a, a significant kind of panic attack, but it was just all of the anxieties about going to Madagascar, which is crazy different than anything he's ever experienced. Mm -hmm. And it just boiled over. And so we brought him home and it took about a year for him to really kind of adjust to that and to, and to learn how to cope with that. And, and, he, and he went back out and was reassigned to Chicago and which is actually where he met a sister missionary that he said he wasn't creepy or anything, but she walked into the district meeting and he said, I'm pretty sure I'm going to marry that woman. And they ended up getting married after they both came home and, and they have no way. our granddaughter now. So anyway, that was, but that year for him was, was very, very difficult. It was difficult for us as well. And we, it was this thing we didn't see coming. Oh yeah. And, and I don't know, and I don't think I coped with it very well, probably until about six months into it, I kept thinking, let's just make this go away. You know, why can't we just get him right back in the mission field right away? I remember right. when we were flying to Utah and I was thinking, okay, here's all the things I'm going to explain to the mission president to help him understand why he just needs to leave him in the field and they're making a mistake. And as soon as I got in there, I realized this is not a negotiation. They don't, <laughs> they said, we've made a decision. This is what's going to happen and you'll be on board with it. But I just wanted the trial to go away instead of going through it. And so that was, that was a challenge. So then fast forward like six years and our fourth son is serving a mission in Mexico. And we get a call from his mission president who says he's really struggling as well, struggling with some mental health things and, and we're not sure he can stay. My reaction to it was completely different because I prayed about it. And I said, I said, Heavenly Father, you know, you tell me, you know, what, what's going on here? And he said, you know what? It's fine. He's going to be fine. Then the best thing for him is to come home. And he did. And he, he served for about a year, which was amazing. And it's a great experience that he's had. Came home, went to BYU-Idaho, met his wife, got married as well. But the difference between my reaction to those two things was 
significant. And I think it's because once you go through something, then you, if you learn from it, then you become stronger again. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, I know we talk about vaccines all the time, but it's basically what a vaccine does, right? It's this inoculation. It puts something in you for your body to fight against. And so then when that same thing comes again, your body says, hey, we fought this before. We know what to do. And it's able to, to deal with it more effectively the second time. But we have to do the same thing emotionally. We have to engage with our trials, kind of take them head on and, and work our way through them. And then when that same trial or a similar trial happens again, then our emotions say, hey, we, re we recognize this. We've been through this before and we can get through it more effectively this time. And then the best benefit of the whole thing is being able to help other people. When our oldest son came home, it was during a time, so this is 10 years ago or so, not many missionaries were coming home early. It's yeah. becoming much more frequent now. I mean, you yeah. probably know people or, or you know of oh, yeah. people who have come home early. I sure um, do. And the brethren are talking about it and how there's no shame in this. You do your best. And if you can only serve for six months, you just serve for six months. And that's your mission. And I think that's wonderful that we're talking that way now instead of, oh, well, you didn't finish. And so here, we're going to keep your plaque here in the bishop's drawer, or you're just a, you're not a return missionary because you didn't, we do the best we can. Yes. And sometimes our best is not all of what may have been expected of us. Welcome to the rest of your life, right? I mean, that's going to be every single day, you're going to have that experience to one degree or another. But what happened to us as, as our son came home, probably about five times in the next three years, the state president would call us up and he'd say, hey, can you go out to dinner with this couple? Because they have a son that's coming home early for a mission and we'd take him out to dinner and we'd talk and we'd help them, you know, process their feelings and help them through it. And that was a great blessing to us and a great blessing to them as well, because once you've gone through it, oh, yeah. you're much better able to help people see their way through it as well. I'm so glad you shared those two stories of your sons, particularly serving missions, because I have I've, I've had a niece and nephew come home from their missions and they both served valiantly and in the best way they could. One was during covid. One was kind of right before and for different reasons, but same, you know, emotional mental health, which is. I mean, the, the pressure that these young people face is 19, 18 and 19 year old kids to go live in a foreign country and go teach this gospel is huge. And I do think our children are strong enough to do it. They are strong enough to handle it. But if for whatever reason, they don't finish the full two years, or 18 months, doesn't make them any less strong or any yeah. less capable or any less of a valiant Latter-day Saint person at all. And I think it's so important that we talk about, like you said, that they get a plaque, that they get the welcome home, that they give their return address in the ward yeah. building. Like, look what you serve people for six months in Mexico City, or you serve someone for an entire year in Ukraine or wherever mm -hmm. that they went, that it's, it's no less noble to go and serve someone and give up three months of your life, six weeks of your life, two years of your life for people. And, and I just think these kids need just love and gratitude and here, now we're going to help you. And a lot of times a kid can go their whole life without knowing like your son did that they had anything. And then a triggering experience that yep. is major 
can just set it off. And aren't you grateful you discovered it before he went to Madagascar and he's on it by himself? I mean, he doesn't have the medical help. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a blessing, but it's easy to think, Heavenly Father, if you knew my kid, why would you <laughs> call them to this? Why right. would you send them there? Why would they go through it? Why even have them feel prompted to go on a mission if they were just going to come home early? But like you said, through these steps, they met their spouses. They had experiences going to school. And that's the same thing with my niece that she came home during COVID. They were, she was in Washington, D.C. at the Temple Visitor Center. So it was completely locked down. They did yeah. not leave their apartment at all. Like one hour a day, they could go take a walk around. Can you imagine? Uh, I mean, you're living with a stranger. I mean, a companion, but can't even go outside. I mean, and can't teach. It's like, why am I here? And when she came home, she met her spouse as well. And he's absolutely perfect for her. And her mission president, same thing was like, you can stay or you can go home. It's no less, you're not going to be, you know, oh, you didn't finish or you're not judged for it. It's you served an honorable mission either way. And I just feel like I have four boys and my hope is that they all serve missions and they all stay out on their missions. But reality says maybe one of them won't, or maybe one of them will come home or more early and to have the tools and ability now to react in a way of love and, oh, we're so glad you're home and make a sign instead of what was wrong? What's wrong with you? Why can't you right. do it? I just think it's so important. So speaking to the parents out there, what is something you did to maybe take that deep breath and, and to keep yourself, it's okay, it, level-headed instead of what's wrong with my kid? Now he's going to fail at the rest of his life and nothing's going to be okay and he's going to have emotional breakdowns and he's now everything is just all right. in upheaval. How, what can you say to the parents out there that have had a child come home or, you know, that are, maybe their child doesn't want to go on a mission? How can they get through this when in our culture, it's like you go on a mission, you stay out. This is, you know, your status in the church of how good of a person you are for doing this. So I think the big difference, it all comes down to our perceptions. I mean, how we, how we understand, how we interpret the situation. And one of the things I found helpful is identifying in our minds the difference between an unacceptable and an undesirable outcome. Oh, okay. Um, and so if you, if, you, if you view something as unacceptable, so, you know, if my child's applying to go to a church school or something and you really want her to get into BYU Provo, and if you say it is unacceptable if she does not get into BYU Provo, then when that letter comes, which comes to tens of thousands of people that says, we're sorry, you didn't get in, then everything crashes down from there. Yep. Because this was an unacceptable outcome. If we can look, and I don't know that, I mean, if you think about the atonement of Jesus Christ and the power that he has to save us and to redeem us, I don't even know if there are any unacceptable outcomes because he can fix everything. That's true. Now, if we change it to an undesirable outcome and we say, I'd really like this to happen, but if it doesn't, it'll be okay. It, it's not something I wanted to happen, but I'll be okay with it. And then, and we'll figure out something else. If you can establish that from the beginning, then when that letter comes or the email comes that says, we're sorry, you're like, oh, okay, well, that's unfortunate, but let's look at the other options you have. And when your first son goes on his mission and you say, we would really love him to serve the whole two years. And that's what we desire. And if he doesn't, well, that's undesirable, but it's not unacceptable to us. And so it just changes the way we react at that point. And I think it's just a simple mental shift there 
where you, you have to look at kind of your expectations for the future and then make those two categories and say, is this something that's unacceptable or undesirable? And the more we can shift to the undesirable column, then I think the better that we can cope with these difficulties when they come. Because then we say, eh, not what I wanted, but that's okay. And we'll deal with it. We'll get through it. And then, like I said earlier, the idea of understanding the Savior and his power, what can break that can't be fixed? You know, everything gets fixed. And then learning to trust him as well, because sometimes he will, like you said, well, why did he call my son to Madagascar knowing full well that that would probably trigger that massive panic attack three days before he's supposed to go? I think because that's how it was supposed to go down. And he's like, there are things to be learned. And if I call this guy to Anaheim, California, he's going to be like, sweet, that's, that's my second home, right? We've been there a hundred times. It, it, there, there needed to be that stark contrast in order for that to happen. So I don't know. I, I think in retrospect, I look at my life and the things that have happened and I go, man, he, I think Heavenly Father has in some way has orchestrated just about all of this just like a good coach would do on any sports team would say, I've got a plan for you. I've got a way for you to go from where you are now to much, much better at doing this. Yes. And as long as you follow what I tell you, then you're going to be, you're, you're going to get really good at this. And there's some days when I go, what are you talking about? Why are you making me do this? This doesn't make any sense. Yep. As you trust me, if you trust me that this is going to work out, this is going to be amazing. And so for me, I'm, I'm just learning to trust the Lord more and more. So when these unexpected things happen, I just go, you know, this is probably another one of those things. So let's saddle up and strap in because it's going to be a ride. But when we get to the end of this, it's going to be better and we'll be stronger and we'll be more resilient. We'll be able to deal with these things more effectively the next time they come. And we'll be who Heavenly Father wants us to be. And the yeah. older I get, the more I think it's not about the thing itself, like, okay, I have to get into BYU, but what is the, what did I learn from applying from getting accepted or rejected? It's right. all about the learning. So yes, your son gets a call to Madagascar. Was it really about going there or was it about the learning experiences that would come right. from having that? It's, I just think sometimes I think I get hung up on the, what could have been and the things I didn't make and the things that didn't happen for me. When in reality, if we are living close to the Savior and to the Holy Ghost, and we're doing the best that we can to keep our covenants, there's not like wrong. There's not a wrong thing, scenario that happened. It's all working together for our good to make us become who we're supposed to become, not necessarily get what we wanted to get. Totally. The, the best part about heaven, or one of the best parts about heaven, is when we get together and we'll just sit around some big celestial campfire and we'll talk about our life experiences and we'll say, aren't we so grateful that this happened? There's, there's an amazing scripture in Moses where Adam and Eve are reflecting on their expulsion from the garden. And Adam says, if we hadn't have been cast out, then we wouldn't have learned these things. And Eve says the same thing. She says, we wouldn't have had children and we wouldn't have been able to, to experience the joy of redemption. And I think we're going to have that experience you know, on, on a much grander scale, looking back at every so-called disappointment and every so-called failure or change in or disruption in our lives. And we're going to go, what a blessing that we're able to go through that and what, and look at what it made us. And now we're sitting here with God back with our heavenly father, more like him than we ever have been. And we can, and it's all because of those challenges that we went through. So I think if we can see that now, we don't have to wait for that celestial campfire. We can try to look at that now and say, okay, wait, maybe this is really for my good. 
And then when those trials come up, then we, instead of saying, oh, I've done something wrong or my life is over or, you know, why me? We say, you know what, maybe this is another opportunity for growth. And so let me engage with this. Let me, and that's what I try to teach in the book is saying, how do you engage with these things? How do you look at this as an opportunity for growth instead of a curse or just some sort of random crazy thing that happened? What can I do to become stronger as a result of this? And I think the more that we do that in our lives, we just get better and better. And, and that's the point is to yeah. get emotionally and spiritually stronger through our difficulties so that we, you know, then we can help others. And then we, like I said, we return to Heavenly Father much, much different than how we left. And the more we do go through, the stronger we get. And so when having kids come home from missions is an incredibly hard trial, losing a child and having them die and pass away is, I mean, I can't even imagine that. And so being able to have that emotional resilience to get through anything. Cause it's, you know, for me, it's easy to say, well, you know, we didn't get that job we wanted or, well, we didn't get the house that we were wanting or something like that. But if it's, I lost someone that I love, are these tools the same David for the small trials as the big trials that you talk about in your book? Oh yeah. 100% completely adjustable to any size trial. The principles that are taught, they, like I said, they can apply to getting a A minus, getting your first A minus, you know, does, does some students out there, that's a big thing to them. Or like you said, going through a divorce or losing a child or, some, or someone dying or whatever it is, you know, all of these things can help us just become stronger in the face of any difficulty. And what seems small to one is not small to another person, right? Yes. Um, it's true. And it that's important too, is that, you know, we look at our neighbors around us, what they're going through and, and you think, oh, I could never do that. And they're right. probably looking at us thinking, oh my goodness, I could never go through that. And exactly. they're all just catered and tailored to what we yep. need to make us stronger and be able to rely on Jesus Christ and return to live with him again. So the book is Enduring the Refiner's Fire, Emotional Resilience for Latter-day Trials. And you can find this at Siegel Book, at Deseret Book, and on Amazon. And David, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today and talk a little bit about how you have used emotional resilience to help you get through some difficult trials in your life. And I'm excited to read this book and excited to continue to learn about the tools I need to help me be emotionally resilient because I think, man, we need it now more than ever. I totally agree. And thanks for having me again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Doing Good with Carmen Herbert. If you'd like to hear more from Carmen and get brand new full-length talks that you can't get anywhere else from some of your favorite speakers like John By the Way, Meg Johnson, and Hank Smith, you can exclusively inside our Turtle House. And when you join today, you can get two months free when you sign up for an annual plan. Just go to OurTurtleHouse.com to get started. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you back here for another episode next week.